0: Invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to First Peter. First Peter chapter 2. We are going to be looking at two texts this morning. I'm going to read 1 Peter, and then we're going to turn to Romans 13. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 uh, through 17. And again, in a summer series, sometimes people will come and join us at certain points and not have the whole context of where we have been thinking and reading in scriptures. And we've been discussing uh, the role of the Christian in light in, in, as Christians in society and how we think about government and how we think about the church itself. And how these different spheres interact with one another and overlap at times, and sometimes there may be points in which conflict occurs—conflict in terms of vision and responsibility—and so we want to encourage ourselves uh, uh, to consider some of these topics. And we frankly have not really had to think about this as an American people for many, many years. And uh, it is important for us. Uh, I don't want to make this. To, I don't want this series to be some sort of impression that you might have upon me as a pastor necessarily. I do think it's important for us to visit this topic, but I don't envision making this a topic for years to come if that makes sense. I do think this is an important topic for us to revisit periodically, and I want you to follow along now as we read in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 13 through 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I would like you to now then turn over to a parallel passage in Romans 13. Romans 13, so we just heard from Peter. Now we're going to hear from Paul. And this is not a case of robbing from Peter to pay Paul. This is a parallel, divinely inspired, common set of instructions We have Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists God who God has appointed, and those who resist will incur, incur judgment. the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, according to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So my sermon title this morning is uh, somewhat provocative, it's uh, actually historically oriented as well um if you look on the wall you'll see an original printing of a sermon uh from 1750 uh depending on the calendar dating system it could be 1749 but uh it was preached by jonathan mayhew and the provocative title was uh discourse concerning unlimited submission and non-resistance to the higher powers and In 1750 uh this was a very provocative and very um Energizing sermon actually to much of the Boston populace. Uh, John Adams, one of our founding fathers, recognized this sermon as uh, something he said years later he recalled that everyone had read the sermon. Some have said actually that this sermon was the very first volley, if you will, in the American Revolution setting forth an intellectual and spiritual justification for resistance and eventual rebellion against the crown of England. Uh, some have said, you know, uh, is it appropriate for us to resist? And, and I have uh, suggested that eventually I would talk on this topic in a little bit more detail uh, to see where we would find any justification. And what's interesting about this particular sermon, he preached it on the 100th anniversary of the death of Charles I, King Charles I, who had been removed by Parliament in England and beheaded. It's going to make a splash, isn't it? Not Anyway, the splash of, like, I'm preaching this on that uh, anniversary point. And uh, our American forefathers really thought deeply about this question. Is it ever appropriate... To pick up arms, to resist even passively, maybe not actively, but how do we think about this as believers? And even before the very first shot was fired in Concord, in Lexington, many were beginning to question the arbitrary nature of the monarchy. Now, someone brought to my attention not long ago the term the Black-Robed Regiment. And I had not been familiar with that term before, but I looked it up, and as you can see, this uh, preacher here with a black robe on, uh, it was a a disparaging term used in England of the clergy in American colonies who were really the rallying point for resistance and encouraging the congregation to come out from underneath of oppressive acts. And it was a disparaging thing. In fact... uh, you know many of the listed grievances that are contained in the declaration of independence are were found in the sermons that were preached years before any shot was ever fired and uh, so i want to give a little caveat because i don't and a, ser, and a sermon ser, a sermon like this you might be imagining pastor are you preparing us to pick up arms is this what this is all about well, I want to issue a little bit of a warning here because uh, we live in a much different age than we did in seventeen seventy six. If you recall, I shared some t- statistics that ninety eight percent of Americans were were active every Sunday in their churches ninety eight percent seventy five percent of colonialists were Protestant and evangelical in their doctrine, 75%. And 98%, Catholic or Protestant, were attending weekly services, even some attending a Thursday midweek lecture from their pastor. This is a different context than where we are living today. Statistically, only 30% of those who profess to be Christian attend church every single week in America today. So we're living in a much different context, and I would dare say that if there was some sort of armed resistance against our, our leaders here today, that it would be much more like the French Revolution, it would be a reign of terror, because the foundation, the biblical foundation and awareness of Scripture and the moral governance of God is absent from a large part of our thinking. It would be a terrifying situation for some sort of resistance like that to occur today. That's my opinion. Some others may share a different opinion. But I intentionally picked this topic and this title because uh, it is provocative, but it also brings us to ask a few questions. Does the Bible command Christians to be subject to governing authorities in every case and in every situation? Is there ever a reason where we might even passively resist what the government is commanding? Is it permissible even actively to resist? And so those are kind of the guiding questions I'm thinking about as I look at these texts, and I'm thinking about these texts, and I'm trying to be faithful to them. And I think it's important for us, first off, to see and I'm not going to disclose my big idea until we get towards the end. But I want us to see first off from these two texts that it is our general duty. Uh, ge- our general duty is obedience to civil authority without reference to any specific rulers. Now why I say specific rulers is because sometimes we might say, well, it's okay for me not to be subject to local authorities. I just need to be responsive to those which are higher than Uh, the local enforcement class that's where my responsibility might end and some sometimes we can kind of kind of imagine something that the scriptures are not saying and it is our general duty to be obedient to civil authorities without any reference to a specific uh, set of rulers think about the context we're in romans 13 we're in romans 13 we need to see the context where is this coming up How is this being presented? And what we're seeing in Romans chapter 12, the chapter prior, we're seeing general principles on how to live the Christian life. General principles. In fact, in uh, chapter 12, verse 2, we're told not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds And that by testing, we might discern the will of God, what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. And so when we engage in this world, we're not just supposed to allow our minds to conform to everything that's going on around us, we're supposed to be testing. And it's in that context of testing that we have this admonition to be submissive to ruling authorities. So on the offset, we have to realize that there is an importance to be evaluative, even as we're receiving commands from governing authorities. It's a part of our personal responsibility as believers. Are commands that are being communicated to us, intended to change my worldview, is it intended to make me think differently as a Christian than I ought to think? And that's important for us to realize at the offset. Um, You'll also see some general commands, like in chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to that which is good. And Paul is writing to Jew and Gentile. And as he's writing to the Jew and the Gentile, he is knowing that there are different values that he's speaking to. Remember a couple Sundays ago, we talked about Jesus getting a a little coin in the marketplace and asking about what he should do with this coin, whether he should be paying to Caesar or not. The Jewish thought process was that they were the elect of God, and then therefore they did not need to be compliant with the taxation schedule of a pagan world. It didn't connect with the reality that they were the elect nation. And so Paul's writing to that viewpoint, and even some pagans were starting to come to Christ and recognizing now they're outside of the world, so therefore, do they have obligation? Do they have obligation to to pay the taxes? And some Gentile believers adopted what would be called an extreme liberty view, in which those who were indulging in freedoms were doing so for their own self-interest, their self-gratification. When we were reading in 1 Peter, I'm going to project the verse here on the slide in just a moment, in which Peter advised, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And this Indicates that some people were saying, "I am a free person in Christ; I don't have to do anything that anyone else says that I ought to do." But that was an extreme position, and Paul writing here says, "No, no, no, no! You need to you need to have the, a sober view of yourself in light of where God has you, and you need to recognize your responsibility in society, and to be submissive to the governing authorities." Now, in Again, in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14, we're told that we're to be subject to every human institution. Human institution literally means a creature of men. We might think about government as definitely a creature of men, maybe like a Leviathan. I don't know what it is. But it is certainly destructive to my own civil liberties. Yet, Paul is saying, and Peter is confirming, that whatever ordinance or construction of governance that has been created by men, it ought to be recognized. We have a duty as believers to be submissive. And that applies to monarchy. It applies to republican formats of government oligarchy governments, there's not a specific kind that that allows us not to be submissive. That is the general stance. And the main end, if you listen carefully to Paul and Peter, the main end of government is actually to ensure your happiness as people. And no matter what kind of governance is embarked upon, there is, even if they have a wrong theory an intention to try to organize society in a constructive way that's helpful for the people. Now, they may have the wrong theory on that. And so it's really important that we understand that at every level of governance, we have responsibility to be submissive. And those who are lower on the food chain are still invested with authority. So example, a traffic policeman, traffic policewoman, is invested with a certain authority to enact and enforce the laws of the state. And each part, even if it's the legislature or it's the executive branch, we all have a responsibility to honor their authority. And they do generally seek the welfare of our country. Now, this implies as well that we only are required to honor those who are truly invested with authority. Those are the ones that we only need to recognize. And I need to be careful because those who are in authority need to stay in their lane. And often people with authority let it go to their heads, right? And they can become abusive in their use of authority and step outside of the lane in which they have been given. We as believers have no necessary responsibility to obey someone who's acting outside of their lane. Important for us to remember. Ever since 1215 A.D., when King John signed the Magna Carta, his authority as king was limited to the consent of the people. It was He was checked by a parliamentary representation. And in this, his authority of king was set up into a lane. And this is how we in the Western society have lived ever since those days. And it's important for us to understand that Even in our own state, Tom Wolfe, governor of Pennsylvania, has a Magna Carta. He has a constitution that he has to follow, and we have to make sure that we listen to his authority as he's speaking within his lane. And we need to be careful that we don't uh, speak poorly of him, certainly, but we need to make sure that we honor uh, the, the authority as it's been laid out. Number two, I want us to think and consider, we are truly forbidden to resist those who rule justly according to the moral and natural laws that we live with. Romans 13, verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists God, that which God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. I believe that Peter and Paul agree on this point. That in the fabric of the creation and the universe that He's created, He has, in He's put moral laws. Just like gravity is a natural law, I've used this illustration before. I know, but there are consequences for violating gravity. There is consequences for violating God's moral law. There is an expectation that justice will be fulfilled, and that somebody has to implement that justice. And God has invested human governments with this responsibility. Now, there are times when the laws of government seem to have a neutral place in our life. And yet, they are intended often to maximize the efficiency of society. Now, I don't want to get into the politics this morning of like what is a good policy and what is not a good policy. And political theory does have some rule, and I'm not going to go there this morning, although I probably would love to, and I'm not going to do it. Paul recognizes that there is a government authority and right to tax people. Governments levy taxes. There are only two certainties in life, right? Death and what? Taxes. All right. But it is true that taxation is neither is not, rather, a morally neutral policy. And even as though we might have lots of strong feelings about them, there is not. There's no wiggle here. We, we have responsibility as believers to pay that which is owed from us. And Christians, actually, in our founding era, recognized that tax policy must be just... And that the lanes that were set up in the 1200s was that without the consent of the governed, these taxes would then be immoral. And so the government of of Britain was beginning to take away the responsiveness of the people and say, we're arbitrarily going to tax you and you have no say in the matter and property is is going to start to be taken from you. That's an immoral act of government that was outside of the lane. And so it's important for us to recognize that there are times when resistance to government may be appropriate. And I will go into this in just, just now. And I think it's important for us to consider what is the extent? <laughs> I've kind of been dancing all around this a little bit. But what is the extent? ...of our subjection to the higher powers. Do we have an obligation of unlimited submission and non-resistance to rulers? And really, this, I believe, is kind of the focus of this message this morning. Really, the big idea, if you will. Is that resistance is a last resort... ...when the consequence of non-resistance would result in greater evil to society... I think I should say that again. Resistance is a last resort when the consequence of non-resistance would result in a greater evil to society. I need to make a few remarks about the text here because you might look at this and say, well, wait a second. Where does it say that? And I would agree with you. And I think it's important for us to recognize that these passages are not intended to be wooden. Wooden. What do I mean? Well, I like the word wooden rather than the word rigid because some people would say, well, then you're not being literal or faithful. That's that's not what I'm saying. Literal means non-figurative. Language has intended communication purposes. And I should say first that we've got to maintain a high regard for God's Word. And if we make God's Word, though, say more than it actually says, we might not be having a high regard for God's Word. If we have it say less than it says, it can also mean that we have a low regard for God's Word. What am I getting at? I'm getting at that God's word at times may not be as black and white and is inf- and as inflexible as that we would want it to be. Romans 13.1 and verse 5, where it talks about subjection to the governing authorities and then do so for conscience sake, some have said... That there is what binds your conscience at all times and in all ways to obey the government, regardless of what it's commanding. Even if it's a despot government, you must obey. Because your conscience will be violated if you don't. Well, and that's how people will say, no, I've got to at least passively obey. It's kind of like the kid who's uh, like, hey, I'm... I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside, okay? I'm going to passively obey. And so, it's important that we don't, though, become hypocrites in the process of obedience to government. That's destructive of your conscience, too. And I think it's important for us to realize, now, I'm going to talk about wooden. What do I mean by wooden again? Well, there are plenty of scriptures where we would read them and we would say, no, 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 there, there, there's exceptions for this. For example, in 1 John 2.15, love not the world. Does that mean that we hate the world? No, it doesn't mean we hate the world. It means, though, that we don't put the love of the world out of proportion with God. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. Think of some others. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Is it wrong to have a bank account? Is it wrong to set aside some money for retirement? No, but a wooden interpretation would say that that would be wrong. In fact, there are some people who advocate for non-planning. Do not take thought for tomorrow. Does that mean a calendar is wrong? No. That would be a very wooden interpretation. Resist not the evil one. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. What do you do with that? Well, Jesus was speaking to people of private concern, people who are engaging in private situations, not in corporate relationship to governments. And so, unless you are a Quaker, unless you are a Quaker who chooses to take these verses and apply them in a wooden sense, and don't allow other scriptures to interpret the meaning here, then you don't really have a way to justify a non-resistance at times to government. Now, I know it can be a hard thing. I know it can be very difficult to our emotions to think, and sometimes we have a hard time processing layers. Not everyone is good at, you know, processing layers and hierarchies. I know that's difficult at times. But we don't do this for other passages. I'm going to give you one more, and I think this is a really important one. Because there have at times been some Christians who would say that wives should submit in everything to their husbands. As a general rule, yes. Yet, if we don't let this speak in consideration of other texts of Scripture, we might inadvertently condone abuse and emotional abuse. And it's so wrong to require Scripture to say more than it actually says. In the book of Exodus, some of us may not realize this, that in the book of Exodus chapter 21, if a husband does not provide for the basic necessities of a wife, that woman is free to leave that relationship. And we need to recognize that. And not make Scripture say what it doesn't say, and not adopt an artificially wooden interpretation. Now, I spend a lot of time on that point. The rest are going to go much quicker. And these passages here really are intended to govern self-interest. We are naturally self-interested people. We, we look for our own interests before we consider the interests of other people. And Jesus, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount had commanded High expectations for his laws. And uh, he said, you must be perfect as your heavenly father in heaven is perfect. And what Jesus was saying is that it's not simply murdering. It's not simply not murdering if you don't murder. If you don't have the positive regard for another person, if you're not interested in them, you actually aren't living up to the positive command of of God. And this is significantly different than how most people think about keeping laws. They think, well, I'm pretty good. You know, I just, I don't don't kill people. I don't commit adultery. I don't do any of these things that the society would say, they're a terrible person. But the reality is, the reality is we often are doing that because we're self-preservationist. We don't want people to think bad of us. Oh, if they could actually hear what was going on in my head, I cut them down, I'm murdering them in my head. We are, because of sin, naturally self-interested. And like Peter said, we can use our freedom as a cover for doing wrong. And so these passages in Romans and 1 Peter are intended to instruct us that as a general rule, we ought to be considering our responsibility to those who are above us. Now, there is biblical example of resistance to tyranny, and I think we ought to consider this, like, like, like the passage on marriage, you know. We would potentially say it, make it say more than it says, not considering the Old Testament examples. Remember the Egyptian midwives? The Egyptian midwives, they... Uh, slow walked if you will they slow walked to go to commit infanticide when the pharaoh had told them to take the lives the of the ones who had just been born that is a form of resistance and they were commended and they were rewarded for their faith in god rahab did not disclose the location of the spies she also was commended and brought into the very line of christ David, when he was under threat from Saul, he fled from Saul's presence. That's resistance. He chose not to obey. He ran, and you know what he did? He formed a military guard for himself. That's resistance, and that's appropriate. Resistance can be simple as just simply having a weapon for self-defense, Owning weapons and knowing how to operate them is a deterrent to oppressive authorities. Raw, rah, Second Amendment, I think, I just heard, right? Sorry. But that comes from Luke 22. Luke 22, Jesus told his disciples to sell their cloak and get a sword because there'd be time of difficulty and need to defend oneself. When Paul asked his own bodyguard to kill the priesthood in shiloh (laughs) the bodyguard said no way they defied the governing authority after solomon's death 10 tribes resisted the tyranny of rehoboam solomon's son 10 tribes seceded from the union i use that on purpose But there was a justification, and they were commended. And Rehoboam was prohibited by God from organizing an army to to go and attack them. Now, in all these examples, there is, we need to recognize, a governing authority that is resisted. And we ought to recognize that... There was an influence, like in Saul. Saul came underneath of the spirit of the prince of this world. There were times when a darkness came upon him, and he did things like throwing a javelin at David, and he was a ruling authority. And if, and if the prince of the power of the air could do that in that day, what keeps us from imagining that he could do it in this day? Now, Satan is not permitted to do anything outside of his so- God's sovereign rule, but yet he is allowed at times to rage against God's people. He roams the earth seeking whom he can devour. Do we have a low view of Satan? Have we believed the lie of modernism that he doesn't exist? He does exist. Why would we not think that it's possible for Satan to influence governing authorities to create a fear so that the church is not organizing and willing to carry out the responsibility to assemble, to preach the gospel. We ought to not be naive as Christians and realize that if, if the satanic host could organize itself in the days of the Persian Empire to try to wipe out the Jewish people what would keep him from organizing governments to stymie the efforts of God's church? We have to keep these things into perspective. But there is, I want us to see also, there is no obligation to submit to abusive authorities. Now, in these texts we see an, what appears to be an absolute Romans chapter 13, verse 4, describes um, the government as God's servant in verse 4. He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, he, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, what this is not saying is that common tyrants tyrants and, and abusers and oppressors are not entitled to your obedience it's important for us to recognize this i'm not saying that governments don't make mistakes that's that they do make mistakes and we all know and we've lived with some of those mistakes but what this is not talking about is a government who puts into plan an action and has the habitual pattern of oppression. It's for good. The good of the society, if the government organized itself to destroy the society, they've become, they've stepped out from underneath of these texts. In our founding, we tend to just think about tax on tea, you know, as like the thing that did it, but that's a very simplistic viewpoint if you read the long list of grievances that are in the declaration of independence you'll find a significant breach of law a significant long breach suspending legislatures court taking military tribunals and taking people off to england and without the jury of their peers all things that were allowed by the common englishman it was not allowed for us here. Now, it's really important for us to understand, though, that there is the potential, and this is the last point here, because I do believe that in the this should be rare. This shouldn't be... We haven't had something like this in 250 years, okay? So, rare. It's important for us to understand that there is, at times, the potential for Christians to participate in the corruption of their own society if they're not thinking, if they're not trying to evaluate and test the spirits or evaluate the world and see whether or not these things align with God's word. And we may at times corrupt, and we have to know where that line is. And we have to refuse to live by lies when lies become broadcast all around us, there are people who use power, the power of media as propaganda to control and to subvert. And it can go both ways. It could be leftists, it could be right right people. It could be people in the middle. We have a, a responsibility to pursue truth as Christians and not. Just simply go along. There's a, there's a real important thing here to grasp. And, you know, when you know the truth, and you're in a, say, for example, a public school setting, and you're asked to write an essay, and you know that your pre- teacher is not going to like what they read from you, there's a real strong pressure there to, to not write what you know to be true. And it's so important that we not tell ourselves the lie internally. Well, I don't really believe that. I'm just going to give them what they want to hear. That carries on into all of human, all of our adult life. And we can do that in our own day. And we start to believe, we start to articulate the lies of our society. And if we're not careful, we're contributing to the corruption of our society, when we know the truth. We know that this is not true. And so there is coming a day where verbalizing truth is going to hurt your resume. It's going to make it more challenging, and we need to purpose like Daniel in our hearts that we will not defile ourselves with the king's meat, and that we will not contribute to the corruption of our society. We need to be salt and light, even if that means taking a personal injury. That's what it means to suffer for righteousness. Now, your elders recognized early on in this last year and a half that the communication that was being communicated to us as a people was on a scale of 1 to 10, it was on a 20. We've not had the public media working this hard since World War II, communicating like drastic, you know, nuclear fallout in our society. We all responded initially to our governing authorities as as elders, and we all thought, and deacons, we all thought that we should kind of See what's going on. But it's important for us to recognize that we are not without the responsibility to honor God's kingdom and to honor truth. Now, we all have individual responsibilities as individuals. We're not taking away any of that. But the reality is government's may operate within the laws that they've been handed, but they can also abuse them. They can abuse those. They can put a psychological pressure upon people. And if we're, in our human psyche, if, if we're given to fear, if we're given to anxiety, those are tools in the hands of a dark power. We have to be careful that we not allow the lies to influence us. We have to always remember that Jesus is Lord of Lords. He's King of Kings. We not just believe the truth. We need to speak the truth and we need to follow him. So it's important for us to understand Like, we didn't really resist, if you will, here in Pennsylvania. We opened our doors as a church within the parameters of the constitution of the state of Pennsylvania. But yet, there nevertheless was pressure applied through the media sound waves to make you think that maybe we were in violation of authority, but we were not. And we need to recognize these lanes in which we live and do truly honor those who seek the welfare of our community, and honor those who have legitimate authorities. In many ways, the church is a parallel society. The world is a society, but we are running parallel. There is a lie that the world believes, but we have the truth. And when we assemble, we remind ourselves of the truth in the scriptures. And so we need the time to gather together to recognize that we are not small, isolated, and alone. We as a people here, as a body, need to remember the great, the great benefit we have of being part of a parallel society. Yes, we leave these doors and we enter into another society, yes. But we have a refuge. We have a place where we can return for the truth. And so, in closing, some might listen to me and say, well, you know, if we resist, well, where would this stop? Well, I think that's maybe perhaps a, a poor question because we could also ask, well, we know that children are to obey their parents, but where, where would, that, we don't, that doesn't stop in that case, we know it intuitively that we we must obey government authorities. It's the rare exception in which we might necessarily have to do so. And so it's important for us as, as the people of God to understand these truths and to put them into perspective and and recognize that in reality the church is a place of resistance. We resist lies. We rally around the truth. And so we need to keep this all in our perspective.